hoping that what I'm going to present, talk and dance um, today will speak back perhaps to something we've explored earlier in the series with Karen and Potter perhaps, but also um, following Rebecca's presentation as well, um, the ideas that really struck me were thinking through making, which as an artist researcher in dance is what I'm doing as well and also um, the body is memorial and the materiality of the body is memorial which really speaks to my work in the archaeological museum. Where does history rest, if at all? And how is history reawakened and put into motion? Performance theorist Andre Lepecki, 2006. These bones will not rest. Sometimes I imagine the museum's galleries after dark, after the colossal front doors have been shut and the crowds and the curators have all gone home. I imagine the silent and still spaces of the halls as perhaps not so silent and not so still. I imagine the whisper of voices, the murmur of stirring inside glass display cases. I imagine sculptors shaking off their plaster and marble and beginning to move. I imagine the bodies of unknown Roman women pushing against the glass of the vitrines enclosing them, their entombed remains refleshed in the darkness. I imagine them smashing through the glass, shattering the vitrines. Sometimes I imagine that I see these ghosts emerge even during the daytime when the visitors are not looking. These are ghosts who dance through time and who move through history. Rehearsal notes, the 9th of November, 2016. What does it mean to be a fragmented body? To be scattered in a thousand pieces? Missing hand, missing elbow, missing foot. To be a body without a head, a statue without a face, to be nameless, to be faceless, to be almost. Upright, rooted to the spot, enclosed, resisting petrification. There is something here about being fixed, being held, and trying to escape. Faceless, nameless, ancient women of the past, if I can unfix you, I can give you flesh.
today, I'd like to introduce you to my practice, creating and performing solo dance works for the Ashmolean Museum of Art and Archaeology, which of course you may know is the world's first university museum and founded in 1683, the UK's oldest. So I began creating the work for the Ashmolean, which has um, just uh, existed in the museum as a solo durational piece over two weeks in April, which formed part of my PhD submission, practice submission. And I began the work, um, I started it through a six month residency um, in 2017, supported by the archive of performances of Greek and Roman drama just down the road. So, what you've just seen is a tiny glimpse um, of one of um, the pieces, Philomela, um, which um, forms one of the four fragments that together form the piece, likely Terpsichore fragments. So, the choreographic practice itself uh, seeks to explore the potential of certain foundational conventions of the ancient Roman pantomime form known as Trigoidia Saltata, or dance tragedy. And those foundational principles that we know of um, are that it was a solo, a masked, and a narrative dance form. Yet, rather than focusing on, of course, the impossible task of reconstructing the ancient dance form, what my practice aims to do is to reimagine uh, those ancient sources in order to find new possibilities for 21st century performance. So the ancient sources that I'm using include the Roman poet Ovid's hexameter poem Metamorphoses, which itself was written contemporaneously with the development of Trigoidia Saltata, and which became a source text for the narratives of all four solo pieces in the, in the um, final performance. So through this practice, my hope is that the new choreographic act um, will, will both dislocate and relocate the ancient dance form and the Latin written text from their classical past and into the present of the performer in the museum. And moreover, when exhibited and on display in the archaeological museum, the practice itself um, situates itself at the centre of shifting temporalities dancing somewhere between the ancient past, the performer's present, and then extending into an unknown future. And my wider question through the practice um, is how we might be able to consider dance, or indeed the dancer, in the archaeological museum as a site of counter-memory, um, and there I'm using performance theorist Rebecca Schneider's reworking of Foucault's term, so what happens to our understanding of time and of history if we juxtapose this notion of a bodily im slash material countermemory, an alternative fleshy history, with the museum's material objects? And even when dance or the dancer in the museum becomes this place, this site of countermemory, might it then allow a new alternative visibility for those bodies most specifically those female bodies that have been previously misrepresented or rendered partially invisible by history. 
So I have at this moment um, to pause a moment to think about the mummified bodies, the remains of the unknown Romano-Egyptian women who are on display in the Ashmolean. And my very first encounter with these bodies on an early site visit was marked by an overwhelming sense of shock. Because on the one hand, these female bodies were, and they are, undeniably materially present in the museum, but on the other, they are classified as unnamed and unknown. So a sense of who these women were, who these women are, has been lost to history. Their bodies are present in the museum, but their stories and their histories are absent from it. Furthermore, in dancing in the museum, I am putting my own body and my own story on display alongside those ancient female bodies. So I too become exhibits. In so doing, I ask how dance practice in the museum might be able to subvert the idea of the gaze of being looked at. How might the practice enable me as a dancer to look back? And here I'm thinking of looking back in both senses of the word, in terms of returning the gaze, but also in terms of looking back on the past, of looking back through history, as inevitably we do whenever we enter the archaeological museum. Rehearsal notes, the 11th of January, 2017. The mask stares back at me. Eyes wide open, it returns my gaze. The mouth, too, is wide open, aghast, screaming silently. The mouth is speaking to me, but I struggle to hear the words. I struggle to hear the scream. At first, the mask's expression seems frozen. I think of a moment fixed in time, a petrification at the moment of horror, but the light in the gallery is shifting. I look closer and I bring my face towards it. The gallery light casts shadows around the eyes, shadows that flicker across the terracotta surface of the mask. In the shifting, flickering light, the expression seems to change, to follow my gaze. It seems to be watching me. The surface is chipped in places, pockmarked, imperfect. This is an old face. This is the face of the turning of time, looking forwards and looking back. I wrote those notes during a first visit to the galleries of Roman and Greek artefacts in the Ashmolean on beginning my six-month residency with the APGRD. By examining the use of the mask in both ancient and contemporary performance, one of my main aims of the residency was to consider through practices research what, the ro what role the mask plays in my own choreographic work, and from there to discover what both the history and potentiality of the mask might bring to dance performance in the Archaeological Museum. It was no surprise then, as I wandered among the ancient fragments on display, that it was a terracotta theatre mask dating to the first century that drew me towards it. Yet as I looked more closely at it, scrutinising its shape, form and material, I realised that this was no actual theatre mask. This was a replica of one. Replica. Response, 
reproduction, copy, double, ghost. As I work with the reimagining of a classical form and a classical text, these ideas of remembering, of reproducing, of ghosting began to speak to me. An understanding of the blending of tenses and temporalities that occur when the present embodied moment of performance is also a living archive, a living memorial for an ancient classical text, for me of its metamorphosis, and an ancient theatre form, where ancient sources are reimagined in order to find new possibilities. I think about how in a slippage of tenses in the moment of performance itself, we might reconfigure a performance history into something new, an archive past, an embodied archive present, and most crucially perhaps, an archive in the process of becoming. I am struck here by what performance scholar André Lepecki has recently written about the body as archive, and in particular, dance's will to reenact. How this will to reenact dance history through dance might be able to address the always ambivalent relationship dance has had with history, with dance's own passing away, and with historical time in general, given dance's insistence on its only time as being the time of being present. Lepecki reminds us that Peggy Phelan's famous diagnosis that performance disappears into memory reveals itself to be one and the same movement that presses performance forth into its futurities and that archiving is, as Foucault suggests in The Archaeology of Knowledge, a system of transforming simultaneously past, present, and future. So how might dance do all of this? How might we consider the live dancer in the archaeological museum as a site of counter-time? How might dance's presence in the museum allow an alternative visibility, a hyper-visibility, for those female bodies previously rendered invisible or only partially visible by history. Furthermore, how might the presence of the live dancer in the museum, the live female dancer, allow certain buried histories to surface and be recollected, becoming through performance part of the museum's collection, at least temporarily? How might choreography, like archaeology, allow us to excavate the body and the past? Is my practice about remembering or dismembering an ancient form? If I am dismembering an ancient form, then I'm quite literally tearing it apart, breaking it down and fragmenting it in order to reassemble it in another way. Performance thereby becomes a process of reassembling scattered fragments, and even when the pieces are joined together again, the cracks are still, perhaps ever more, present. Between these reassembled fragments appear gaps, those spaces between, which offer the possibility for unrealised potential histories to form and appear. As Tony Bennett reminds us, the museum is a training ground to think about temporality, to think about time differently. Might dance in the museum then be considered a means to think about history differently? For me, live dance in the museum possesses the potential to articulate the gaps between temporalities. My thinking here conflates and expands two recent ideas. Rebecca Schneider's theorising on performance 
as perhaps another word for the intervallic, her words. And Georgina Guy's idea of the lacuna between the performed and the displayed, which may be encountered anew and imagined through acts of theatre, exhibition and curation in the museum. Dance scholar Gabriella Brandstetter points to how that which she terms the museum in transition can serve as a cultural model for restructuring traditional categories of narrative. She evokes the anecdotal, the unpublished, or the not yet published, as opposed to the grand récit, and uses dance in the museum as an example of how performance might be able to offer a challenge to critical historiography. For while traditional historiography tells history with a beginning, middle, and an end, performance in the museum, precisely because of its fragmentary nature, offers the opportunity for the anecdotal to be displayed. As part of the residency at the archive, I wish to further research how the mask works in the practice. Might it in fact be the mask that accepts and bridges the gaps between? The gaps between the sculptural and the live, the material and the immaterial, the tangible and the intangible, the object and the body, the past and the present. Three main strands of inquiry emerged from and during the practice with the mask throughout the residency. The first was how the mask enabled me as a performer to return the viewer's gaze. The ancient Greek word for mask, prosopon, means before the gaze, and as theatre historian David Wiles reminds us, the gaze under scrutiny might equally belong to the seer, or she who is being seen. This trope of the shift from seer to scene is of course common in the ancient world, a world where I am coincides with who I am seen to be. The duality of being both before the gaze and presenting or returning it, of being seen but yet also seeing, appeals to the broader feminist framework of my wider practice in the museum. As I've been thinking a lot about the potential of the moving, dancing, female body in the museum to allow certain buried histories to surface and be recollected. I'm thinking here of the live dancing female body in the museum as having the metaphorical potential to smash the glass that encases the mummified bodies of those unknown Romano-Egyptian women in the Ashmolean's galleries, for example. Within this context, I have also been exploring how the live female dancer in the museum might also be able to subvert the idea of the female body as exhibited object on display and historically subjected to the gaze of the male collector. So how does the practice in the museum create this subversion? Might subversion occur through somehow finding a means to return the onlooker's gaze from behind the glass? Might it be the mask that offers this means? So evolving quite naturally from that first point, a second question was to explore then the type of mask that could enable the subversion to take place. So over the course of the research, although the practice emerged from reimaginings of the Roman dance theatre form and works with a Latin text, I found myself moving away from the Roman pantomime mask and towards the ancient Greek tragic mask. So whereas Roman and Hellenistic masks have much more elaborate features and clearly demarcates characteristics or characters or personae. Um, the 4th and 5th century BCE tragic mask is much more neutral. 
And I was actually interested in what that neutrality could give me as a performer. So um, theatre um, pedagogue Jacques Lecoq um, speaks of the neutral mask as essentially developing the presence of the actor in the space around her, placing her in a state of discovery, of openness, of availability, and of being able to receive. That's my translation of Lecoq. And it's important to remember um, that for Lecoq, the neutral mask is a pedagogical tool to take the performer back to the beginning in order to cast off personal idiosyncrasies and to rediscover how to use the body. It is not a performance mask. However, in my own practice in the museum, and because I was very interested in the neutrality of the Greek uh, tragic mask, um, I started to use a neutral mask, this one, um, first in practice in the studio, but then also in performance too. And I actually found that although Lecoq would say it's not at all a performance mask, um, I effectively found myself subverting Lecoq's mask tradition because I found this a very powerful uh, tool in performance. Um, and the power of the neutral mask, um, for me, lies in its very neutrality. It's precisely because of its blankness um, that it can become the face of every woman. Um, it can become the face of the Ashmolean's um, mummified Romano-Egyptian unknown women. Um, in my in Lightly Clipsicory, it becomes the face of Myra, of Medusa, of Philomela, and of Galatea, um, who are all female heroines that feature in the Metamorphoses. And finally, uh, when we look at the pictorial evidence of the tragic mask um, on ancient pots and vases, and here I'm indebted to um, Professor Oliver Taplin, who really advised me on this issue. Uh, what I began to find striking is that very rarely do we see performers wearing their masks. So rather we see them holding them in their hands, they're either about to put them on or having just taken them off. And sometimes the performers are looking intently at their masks, their gaze focused towards them. So then we as viewer look at the performer on the pot, looking at the mask, looking back at them, and so our gaze is directed to the mask's gaze and then back to the performer. And so I began to ask how I might be able to mine these layers of looking and looking back in the acts of masking and unmasking. And then that led me on to think, well, what might happen if the act of masking and unmasking becomes itself part of the performance? And how might that affect the return of the gaze? Rehearsal notes, the 9th of March, 2017. Holding the mask in her hands, at first she is hesitant, looking, wondering. A sudden move and she assumes the mask, lies prone on her back, corpse-like. I think of death and of a burial. And yet she is breathing. I watch her chest rise and fall. She pauses an instant, a split second of stillness that is not quite stillness, but moving, always moving in the quiet motion of breath. Slowly, deliberately, she continues to move, never stopping entirely. It is as though she is the opposite of Pygmalion's Galatea, resisting petrification. This is not so much about reanimation as resisting the sculptural stillness surrounding her. Still slowly, Still deliberately, she makes her way along the glass, her body warm behind the glass encasing her, turning and revolving, occasionally stopping and yet not stopping, 
the movement of her breath continuous and fluid. Once she reaches the far end of the glass, she lifts her arms upward, she closes her eyes, she opens her mouth, and she screams. Falling to the floor in slow motion, falling through time and space, she turns her head to an object in the vitrine next to her. It is a mask, her mask, with its smooth blank surface and blank eyes and open mouth looking up at her. She spends a long time in contemplation of the mask before picking it up and cradling it in her hands. She holds it at full arm's distance and time suddenly picks up in speed, speeds up, taking her backwards along the glass. She holds the mask up, looks it directly in the eye and puts it over her face. Now she can tell Philomel's story. This is Philomel. So Philomela, Philomel, is a relatively minor figure in ancient Greek mythology, but is frequently invoked in literary and artistic works in the Western canon. She appears in Ovid's Metamorphoses, Book 6, which, as I've said, is my main source text for finding narratives to develop the practice. And while the myth of Philomela has many variations, the narrative is that having been raped and mutilated by her sister Procne's husband Tereus, who cuts out her tongue so she cannot speak of her ordeal, Philomela obtains her revenge and is then transformed into a nightingale. And for the performance at the Ashmolean, and I'll show some images after, um, I chose to use Ovid's story of Philomela as a metaphor for the story of the muteness of those unknown women housed in the archaeological museum. I've said that having seen those bodies in situ in the museum, how struck I was by the silencing of their unknown voices through history, and of course by the appropriation of their bodies and their stories in what might arguably be you know, a very patrilineal space. I was asking through the dance practice, how could I reclaim a space and also a body for them? And in thinking of those women, and of Philomela too, whose story is even appropriated by Ovid, I wanted the practice to ask how you might speak when you have no tongue. How do you tell your story when you have no voice? How do you move and communicate when you are bound, when you are trapped, and when you are voiceless? And so the, um, the eight-minute fragment, Philomela, was performed um, on the second floor. Um, I think, I don't know how many of you know this space in the Ashmolean, but on the second floor, um, balcony, vitrine-like balcony um, above the, the atrium, and all of the fragments took place in these glass um, corridors. Um, and behind the glass, half exhibit, half movement installation, with no soundscape or music, uh, Philomela, the solo, offered a space for subverting the idea of being looked at, for looking out, for looking back, and through performing the act of masking and unmasking, and thereby returning the gaze. The first few minutes of the solo play with the idea of the tableau vivant, of stillness that is never really stillness, but a continual slow motion movement advancing along and behind the glass vitrine. Um, this recalls allusions to the Galatea Pygmalion trope in modernist dance and cinema, um, and offers a way into introducing the mask as a means of bridging the gap between the statuary, so the statue, and the mobile, the dance. After a moment, in contemplation of the mask, once I put it on, then what I call the narrative proper of Philomela could begin. And this was a furious and fast-paced choreography 
exploring movements of restriction and struggle, of an imprisoned body, a caged nightingale whose wings are clipped and whose music is silent. And actually, it was during the very first performance, particularly of the fragment Philomela at the Ashmolean, that I was struck by the encounter with the public. So I you know, had the great fortune of being able to rehearse in the Ashmolean on a Monday, which is, of course, the closed day to the public. So I spent several weeks um, with this great privilege of being in that space on my own. Um, and so having rehearsed in relative solitude on those days, I found myself in performance suddenly exposed and on display. Um, and as a performer, you know, I always love to be on display, but the, the, with this work, it was the strangest experience of utter objectification. Because as I danced from behind my glass, I was watched on all sides, from above, from below, by literally hundreds of pairs of eyes as these, you know, tourists, um, people are passing, viewers passing through throughout the day. Yet, through the mask, I found I was able to return the gaze and make a connection with those eyes looking at me from the other side of the glass. It was as if I was pleading them to look at me, to acknowledge me. This return of their gaze was Philomela's silent final cry. I realized that this was not so much about Egalatea being brought to life by a Pygmalion, but Egalatea resisting petrification. This is Philomel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.